This episode of the Get Fast podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. You are joined, as always, by your host, Australian Ironman champion, Jared Donnelly, and I am Jordan Donnelly. On today's episode, we have a very special guest uh, that we are, we're really excited to chat to, a uh, true Aussie cycling legend, someone that's very well known in the sport, uh, and we were very grateful that he gave up his time to chat to us, uh, and that is ex-pro cyclist and current SBS commentator, Dave McKenzie. Uh, he was a pro for many years and then has spent the last decade or so being a uh, one of the expert commentators on SBS. You all would have heard his voice throughout uh, the Tour de France or any other big races on TV last week at the Australian um, road race titles. Uh, he is also a coach. He runs cycling tours um, and he's just quite a humble person. Um, and we really enjoyed that part of the chat where he you know, spoke about some of his, of his best moments in his career in a really humble way. It was interesting, wasn't it, Jordy? He kind of was a little bit uncomfortable talking about himself, but once we got him going, it was great to get some insights into his experiences as a pro cyclist. And, you know, he was at the at the top of the tree, winning at a stage of the Giro and winning a national Australian title, which has, you know, I think become more prestigious now as the years have gone on. And and he's a very humble, humble guy and, uh, you know, not big on promoting himself, but, uh, boy, he's achieved a lot on his journey. And, and his insights uh, as a commentator, he's so, uh, you know, he's got a really good voice to listen to and he understands what's happening in the race. And and it was really an intriguing interview and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was, it, he had a lot, a lot of good things to say and, and I really enjoyed his uh, take on the future of cycling and where he thinks it's going and, and uh, how important grassroots, grassroots cycling is to the sport. And uh, there's so many good things we got, we got across today. So I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. So without further ado, here is the episode with Dave McKenzie. Okay, we've got Aussie cycling legend Dave McKenzie on the line with us. Dave, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. No, pleasure. Pleasure, guys. We um, we saw you last week, and I want to start on this note, uh, at the uh, National Road uh, series and you were there impressively not just uh, for all the elite categories but you and yourself and Matt Keenan uh, the SPS team was commentating every single category from the Wednesday through to the Sunday and I just thought that was absolutely amazing that every single event the time trials the team time trials every th- every single category all the way through to Sunday uh, in the elite category uh, you did an amazing job just commentating all day and I think that really shows um, your love for the sport so the first question I want to ask is what does the sport of cycling mean to you? Mm, good question. Um, well, if, firstly, if I'll just go to your point on the national champs, I think that was the, well, it was the second live venue I've done in 12 months, as mm. we all know, with COVID, all live events were cancelled. So it was sort of weird hearing the sound of my own voice out loud, I must say. Um, but no, look, I think it's it's a tough one to answer because it, it's a, I can give a really long answer because I think it deserves a long answer. But I guess to sum it up, it's um, it's freedom. It, it is passion, absolute passion. I mean, I was born sort of in a cycling family. My father raced. I've got an older brother who who was a pretty good cyclist as well. So um, I, I think it's not until you realise when you retire actually how much you love the sport. You love it absolutely when you're competing. But for me, I thought I'd get out of cycling completely when I retired. Mm. And uh, it wasn't until sort of a year after when I realised actually I wanted to stay involved. And it was, you know, I'd done a 20-year apprenticeship in the sport. So, uh, and at that point, I sort of thought, well, there's not much else. I know what I want to do. So <laughs> this will do for now. It's, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Because... Um, when did you actually realise when you were coming to the end of your career that, okay, I'm going to have to stop being a professional, what, what am I going to do next? Was that a year of wondering, you know, where's the direction I'm going to go? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And, you know, I think it's a question, well, not just for me. I mean, I'm well and truly <laughs> past that sort of bubble of retirement. But for a lot of athletes, as we know, not just cyclists but who, who sort of, engross themselves in this sport it can be really tough and I I had a year of sort of probably uh I won't lie it was pretty tough I I I was I bombed out of year 12 I finished year 12 but I I wasn't very good at high school and my sole focus was to be a pro cyclist 
I sort of fulfilled that dream to a degree, um, but I certainly didn't make millions of dollars that I, <laughs> I wouldn't have to work yeah. again. Yeah. And so when I retired, I actually I played golf for about six months for about four days a week. Yeah. And this is a true story. And it wasn't until about nine months into retirement, my wife said to me, okay, one day she said, are you just going to play golf <laughs> for the next however long? Because at some point you've got to get your life in order. So she gave me a, a good kick up the butt, which I deserved. And I actually went and worked in a bike shop and I was building bikes for about three months and a sort of a sponsor slash friend in Melbourne. And it was the best thing I ever did because it really grounded me. It took me back to my absolute roots of, of sort of cycling. And then I started coaching out of that. And then I found a, I found a pathway for myself. Um, and through that three-month period, I thought that I was going to get out of cycling. And I went to a few of my contacts and tried to get out of cycling. And they all said to me, we'll give you a job, but you're crazy. Yeah. You're leaving a sport that you've got all this knowledge in. And so it sort of took some close friends to actually, I guess, help me decide on my direction. But, yeah, it's tricky. And, I, you know, it's, it's the age-old thing, isn't it? We say any sports person needs to have a good group of sort of peers around them, um, mm -hmm. whether it be role models, mentors or whatever. And inadvertently I had that and I hadn't reached out to those people much throughout my career probably. It wasn't until the end of my career then I suddenly sort of went, whoa, hang on, that happened mm. quickly. Mm. <laughs> 15 years has just flown and now what? So, but, yeah, I was fortunate. I had a lot of good people around me. Yeah, it does make a difference when you've got a good network of friends who can tell you the truth that, that uh, might be not what you want to hear, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, that's right. And, I mean, luckily for me, the, the truth was it was a good truth. You know, they were telling me stay, stay, stay in the sport. Um, you know, you can. There's a lot you can give, and I was, I was fortunate because I retired in '05. There weren't too many sort of cycling coaches around at that time. There was a few, but privately there weren't too many. Certainly in Melbourne, and um, I sort of had the, you know, I had the pick of about five thousand cyclists riding up and down Beach Road at that point, and I'm sort of not joking. It was, yeah, yeah. There really weren't too many. So, and I wasn't really interested in coaching. Um, elite athletes I, I was into it but it wasn't sort of what I was focusing on so I was really lucky I, I, I sort of created a business and and I loved it for about you know six or seven years yeah um what stage did that change to to getting into the media and into commentary and um that direction was that was that something that you eased into or was it something that just came up and the opportunity arose for you uh yeah, the opportunity arose. I think, I think if I go back to when I first retired, I didn't absolutely. I did not have media or TV on my radar at all. Um, saying that, in my last year or two racing, a couple of producers that that were that were doing showing cycling highlights at races in Australia, they'd sort of mic'd me up during a couple of races and and got me to talk, you know, like the Bay Crit series, stuff like that. They tried, and it was actually pretty innovative because that was back in about 2002, 2003. Yeah. And so I'd sort of dabbled in it without realising it. And the producer at the time said, mate, you're pretty good at this. You need to, you've got a future in this when you retire. But, you know, as we all know, there wasn't much live cycling on TV. No. Yeah. And it was, it was 2007, in fact, so I'd had a year out playing golf <laughs> and I hadn't lowered, lowered my handicap, by the way. I was a lousy golfer. Um, that was, was the question I was going to ask you is what did you get your handicap from? <laughs> Let's not go there. Let's just not go there. There's plenty of bunkers. I know that much. Um, but, no, it was 07, which is hard to believe, but that was the first year the Tour de France was shown live every day in Australia. Mm. And Mike Tomolaris, I'd known him from interviewing me in my racing days, and I told him I was going, going to be at the tour. And he said, mate, I need someone at the end of each stage to talk. Can you, can you come on for a week or so? And so I, I did it for a week and that was it. I fell in love with it. I just thought, how good is this, you know, getting paid to speak about yeah. a sport you love? Yeah. I thought, this is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> Why didn't I think of this sort of sooner? And it just sort of. But even then, honestly, even then, I, I didn't think 14 years later I'd be, I'd be, you know, it's, it's really is my main form of income now, and 
it's such yeah. a great job and we've got a great bunch of people that we work with and so I'm, re- I'm really fortunate and I, I, I'm, I will say I really do not take it for granted. Mm. It is fantastic that you've got such a great relationship with Mike Tomalaris and, and Robbie and Matt and Bridie and the whole crew in there. So it comes across to the listeners as, you know, people really know and are knowledgeable about what's happening in the peloton and, and you know, to have a guy like you and Robbie and, and to you know, a certain extent Bridie in her racing career you know, the knowledge that the listeners are getting, the insights you're giving, what the, the, the cyclists are feeling and doing and reacting and the, the director sport is information, you know. It, it, now, we were so used to listening to the European commentators. It's so good to have you guys now just uh, coming from an Australian point of view. Um, it, you know, I don't know if you realise that that's what's happening, but but it is it is super special for... Uh... Yeah, yeah. No, thanks. And, and we, I, I guess probably all of us, we owe our credit, honestly, to probably our executive producer at SBS and there's other people that are behind the scenes. I won't mention them, but they they realise that and they've and SBS as a network have actually really backed cycling, as mm. we know, over, you know, since they got the Tour de France, but they've absolutely committed. And, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> half-jokingly I say, Thankfully, they lost the soccer and thankfully they've lost most of the tennis because now cycling is a big priority, So, which helps people like me. But, yeah. no, look, in all seriousness, we have a fantastic team behind the scenes who back us in. And, and you know, we've learnt over the years on the job and I've been fortunate that I've learnt from really good people. Um, and when I've made mistakes, they haven't, they haven't flicked me. They've said, you know, just improve this a little bit, improve here. Mm, yeah. and, and, and you do, you learn. And if, you're, if you've got the ability to learn, then, yeah, you can, you can have a career in it. Yeah, and we did sort of jump straight into your career and I kind of like to trace back. Um, normally we would do it the other way and find out a little bit about your history, but, you know, it's probably most people, it's well known, your, your cycling prowess. And, and we, I'd like to touch on that a little bit, uh, but the main thing I, I'd like to find out is, you know, obviously you said your, your family had a passion, you know, your brother was a good cyclist, your dad. Um, did you fall in love with it straight away? Is that something you just, was it because the family was doing it, you were going to do it? Or did you actually say, no, I really like, I really like this cycling sport? Yeah, I mean, yes, one hundred percent. I was so I was going to bike races when I was, you know, old enough to go. At the age of four, yeah. I was going to bike races, and I was mesmerised by it. Mm. Whether it be, you know, I grew up in Ballarat, and then sort of later on, high school years in Shepparton. But I remember going to the Melbourne to Ballarat handicap race. You know, in the middle of June when it's freezing cold. Yeah. standing out on the on the the main road coming into Ballarat and watching I think I was I watched Dean Woods come in you know yeah. as a 17 year old he was a junior world champion yes. at the time Olympian yeah. yeah and he crossed the line and they never caught the winners but he got fastest time and his brother was there sort of looking after him and they had one of those like a sandman a panel van and they had the back open and Dean lie back in the back of the van and his brother was massaging him and I was just like wow well this is amazing you know this sport's incredible so i just you know i'm not joking that's 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 my first sort of impressions of you know falling in love with the sport now we laugh at that stuff and say my god you know but that's what the sport was then and i just couldn't wait you know so that all these guys along the way you know dean woods and i mean some of these guys you may or may not know of eddie salas um, Olympian Stephen Fairless was a was a guy yeah. from Shepparton, and there's a great little doco on him. But they all inspired me, you know. And then as I knew more, Phil Anderson was a massive, yes. a massive sort of hero of mine, and, and still is. Phil's such a, a yeah. humble sort of great guy, and um, so yeah, I just couldn't wait to get to Europe. Yeah, there's certainly some trailblazers who came before you, but you were very early on, um, and as it. I suppose, did you realise you had talent, Dave, or did it take, did you, were you successful as a junior? Um, yeah, no, I knew I had talent. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, I'm not talking myself up, but I, I, I was started to be really competitive in under 16s, under 18s, or juniors. And then, uh, and then I, uh, those days you went into amateur ranks, so there was no under 23s. So I was always, 
really high state level and then I slowly pushed my way into national level, so, you know, getting medals at national champs at junior level. But you never know how good you're going to be really. When, you, when, you, when my mindset was to be in Europe, you don't know. Mm. And then it's not until you get off a plane in Europe and you ride your first race and you go, okay, well, it's, I've just gone from under 10s to, <laughs> you know, I've gone from under 10s AFL to AFL. Yeah, that's that's that was the gap back then. Yeah, and um, so yeah, that was a. <laughs> I knew I was pretty good in Australia, mm. but when you get to Europe, it's how old? How old were you when you made that decision to? I'm going to go to Europe and see see how good I am. Oh, 10. Yep. <laughs> and and when you did it, how old were you? Uh, I was 17. Yep. I think. Oh, 18. I was 18. I went to the Junior Worlds as an 18 year old and yep. completely, completely got my butt kicked. Like completely, I rode the road race and the team's time trial, and um, I think I sat on the team's time trial, guys. <laughs> my teammates, by the way, one of them was Matt White. Uh, Nathan O'Neill was another one. There's uh, two guys that I yeah. raced with and went on had, had good pro careers. I, I, I think I pulled one turn at the start, and I sat on them for about 50 kilometres, and I pulled a turn with about 15k to go. And I tried to get on, and I got dropped. Oh, no. <laughs> that was that was that was where I was at. Um, you know, at, at world, I was really overwrought, actually. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I remember coming home thinking, okay, I'm going to come back next year, and I'm going to improve a little bit. And so, yeah, it was a real, it was a journey for me. It wasn't it wasn't the Robbie McEwen journey where Robbie just excelled. You know, he was destined for greatness, and we now now we know that. Obviously, yeah. he yeah. was a superstar. Um, and we, Robbie and I, I say I use Robbie as an example because we sort of grew up as eighteen-year-olds, and he, he's a couple of years older than me. But up until twenty-three, racing together, national team, national yeah. races, and then we went to Europe, and he just excelled. So I knew my journey, if I wanted to make it, was going to be a, a long, hard one. Yeah, was that a turning point uh, going to those world titles and, and getting your butt kicked and then saying, right, you, you, you've got a choice here, haven't you? I can actually raise my level or I can just stay home and be a good, you know, national rider. Is that a decision that you came to? Yeah, it, yes, it was. But it was probably more, I did the Worlds two years later in, as an amateur and in, in Italy and I, I went about 10 laps of the 14-lap circuit and that was more of a sort of light bulb moment in my head. And I remember the day after the road race, I was literally floating around to the ocean thinking, gee, this is beautiful. And it was August, so it was sort yep. of, you know, middle of summer. Yep. And I thought, I've got to, I want to do this. I want to do this as a living. I want to do it as a sport. And I was, I was, I was I'm probably a bit of a gypsy at heart too. I love the travel and I love the... Yep. the history and culture of Europe and I've loved it more and more each year I go back so I was always you know part of the battle for any athlete or certainly cyclists is that culture shock um, the physical aspect of being a pro that's only 50% of the battle so I was in love with Europe and I just wanted to get back so it was a bit of both actually and and did you set yourself up in a, an invited team how did you get yourself back and did you land in Belgium where did you land and, and how did that process start yeah, I mean, we were lucky at that time in our era, the national team, the state teams were just getting funding. So the Victorian Institute of Sport, N-Swiss and SASE and all these state institutes, they actually were just founded in about 1993, I think it was. So by the time I went to Europe for the second time in 94, the states had a bit of a pathway into national team, if you were good enough. So I made the national team. We had an East German coach, Heiko Salzwedel, we spent a big chunk of time in, in Germany racing a lot of the German tours. So we were well looked after, mm. Um, mm. you know, and being around a national team, it was just like going away with a bunch of your best mates mm. and, yeah, some fantastic memories. We, we got our butt kicked most of the time, but we actually, actually we did punch above our weight, you know, with guys like Robbie winning stage. He'd pick off stage wins here and there at, yeah. at tours. So we'd, you know, we'd hold our own and, my first, my first actual decent win was my second race in Europe as an amateur and I won a stage of the Tour of Holland, the amateur Tour of Holland. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, that's when I first went, well, gee, I've made progress really fast. This is, so that, you know, that eggs you on. Yeah. That gives you motivation to sort of, 
you know, get your head kicked in for another six months before you win your next race. Did you think, Dave, that you could last? Was it a worry that you're taking this risk? You, I mean, you're doing something you love. I get that, and you'll do it for as long as you, you can possibly fund it. Were you, were you always thinking in your back of your mind, how long is this going to last? And is determined by my results, obviously. Was that yeah. something that was a pressure that, that you felt? Not early on. I mean, I'm not conservative by nature. So I'm a, I am a bit of a risk taker. And I didn't know that at the time. But, you know, it wasn't probably until 22, 23 that yes, I start you start to think about your finances and am I, you know, am I sort of making inroads here? Am I going to make enough? Am I making a, you know? So yeah, it wasn't really until I got married when I was 23. So yeah, that's that sort of then changes a bit my wife, which is still my wife now. <laughs> she um you know she made the decision to pack up and come to Europe with me mm-hmm. sort of before we got married. She quit her job and you know, I'd turn, I think I'd just turned professional 20, uh, 21, 22. So, but, yeah, it wasn't until, you know, I didn't have an issue with lack of finances at 18. It wasn't really until 23 that you start to go, okay, where am I at? You know, where, where's my career at sort of thing. And was, what was your work ethic like in those years going between amateur and then becoming pro? Is it something because you said you're, you know, you're quite far back in terms of the gap? And did you really have to just put your head down and um, feel like you were, had to work harder than ever, everyone else? Um, I mean, it's yeah, yes and no. I mean, I was I was pretty. Um, I look back now, I like to think that I, you know, I dotted my eyes and crossed my t's in terms of preparation and you know everything, all the things you should do off the bike. I was doing, so I think I did everything right. But the sports changed so much. So back then. You know, it was it was like you'd turn professional, or or even in the amateur ranks. Because I remember I went to a a Spanish team sort of two years after the national team, and you know they'd they'd grab you by the cheeks when you turn up and say, "Ah, oh, you're a little bit fat. You've got to lose a little bit of you know." And we really were just learning about dieting and stuff like that. And it's become even more advanced now, but you know you'd starve yourself then, and you know, some riders actually pushed it too far. Mm. And, and we would, you know, you guys would know this in all sports, in triathlon, in in any of these endurance sports where it's, you know, power to weight ratio. So it was probably more a learning curve of learning more about my body, what it was capable of, you know, how much weight could I use mm. that would be to my benefit. So it took me probably three years in the pro ranks to actually really sort of dial into my body and know what I was capable of, where my optimum sort of race weight was. And I was a sprinter, but, you know, sprinters in Europe, you have to, you have to be one of the better climbers in Australia. Yeah. At, a, at, a national, at a national road series race, a sprinter in Europe has to be able to climb as better than just about any other rider domestically in the country. So, you know, yes, I knuckled down, but I wouldn't say I knuckled down anymore. I just knuckled down, you know, progressively each year and, and and slowly sort of got better and better in the pro ranks. Were you getting, like, uh, for me looking back and, uh, and hearing the stories, and I love hearing the stories of uh, the, the early trailblazers like yourself and the Phil Andersons and, and Robbies, um, O'Grady's and all those guys, as, were you getting assistance as to what to do, what training to do? Uh, you know, it's a prof- you're, in a, you're a professional but it seemed so amateurish, didn't it? That, oh, um, yeah. Was there anybody, anybody in your corner, Dave, or were you just finding out from trial and error? What was, what was happening? Yeah, I, mean, I mean, so I had two years in the national team and, you know, the head coach was, was Heiko Salzvedel, who'd been a track coach. So he had a lot of knowledge. And incidentally, I think he sold, before he came to Australia, he sold his training methods and programs to Charlie Walsh who was uh, running the team pursuit squad. Yeah. So, you know, the two years I learnt a fair bit there. And then my brother was really sort of coaching me a bit. But once I was in racing in the pro ranks, you know, you're on your own. There was no internet. Those early years, there was no internet. There was no mobile phones. Yeah. 
you'd buy a phone card and you'd call home once a month or, you know, twice a month. So, yeah, yeah it was very limited. It was very yeah. limited. You, you were fending for yourself to a degree. Um, and I was probably not that good at, you know, looking back now, I probably wasn't good at sort of sourcing out the right people to sort of be in my corner. Yeah. I had I, I had some great people in my corner and I'm not making excuses, but, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? And uh, mm-hmm. the older we get, the wiser we get, I suppose. Yeah. So, um, but it was the same for everyone, all the expats. It was the same, really. Yeah. Knowing what you do know now about coaching and you've been a coach, you know, for a long time, you've been a professional athlete, knowing, knowing the information such as power and heart rate and, and intervals and recovery and all those things, would it have changed your career? Would you have been a better cyclist? Because I imagine you are such a competitive and determined bugger that you would, if you, if you had a poor result, you'd go and train harder probably. Well, you've answered the question for me, I guess. Probably, and I mean, firstly, I'll say no because I always say, or well, I said my whole career, at the end of it, you've got to be content and, and not sort of have what-ifs or, you know, could-haves or should-haves or... So the answer, the short answer is no. Um, however, I certainly overtrained in my early years as an amateur. And I think the most kilometres I ever did as an amateur was on the national team. I did 36,000 Ks in one year. As a professional, I never, ever got near that. Mm. So I did learn, probably my amateur years, I might have gone a bit better if I had, have, yeah. you know, honed in on my training and actually just not overtrained, mm. not trained as much just yeah. been a bit smarter with my training. But, you know, most of us were doing the same. Most of us didn't know. Yes. Uh, and even the, even probably the pros actually were just sort of a step ahead of, um, well, they were uh, the amateur ranks because the pros raced more, trained less. Yes. Amateurs trained more, raced less. So it was, you know, mm-hmm. that, that was sort of how it worked in those days. Yeah. So I want to ask you, what is your favourite race, favourite moment in, in your career? And I've got a feeling there's two standouts that you, you'll choose from, um, but your favourite moment in your career? Oh, it's, it, I mean, it's an easy one. It's got to be the Giro, the Giro stage win. And, you know, that it sort of goes back to the question you asked me, would I have done better if I'd trained differently? Each year I look on, I go, wow, I, I won a stage of the Giro and there's still to this day – I don't know, there's about 10 or 15 Australians in a in a race that's been going for 80-something years. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those lucky ones that can forever can mm. say I've, I've won a Giro stage. So the Giro stage is one. And then, you know, if I had to name another one, this is funny because my son was asking me this the other day and he, he has very little interest in cycling, but he said, you won a national title, Dad. And I said, yeah, yeah. And he goes, God, I can't believe you don't talk about it much. And I said, oh, well, you know, whatever. It is what it is. And he said, what's more important, the Melbourne to Warrnambool or the national title win? And we're talking about the Melbourne to Warrnambool because sadly it was meant to be on weekend just gone. And I said, that's a tough one. I said, I'd probably say the nationals because it's it's got prestige around the world. You know, any national champion, if you're introduced, they say, wow, that guy or that girl, wow, they're a you know, former national champion. So, no, that, I think those two. But the funny thought story with the national title, I never got to wear the jersey because I won the national title at the end of October and then they changed the date oh. to January the following season. Oh, it's devastating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, more than devastating. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's this ongoing joke now with yeah. Matt Keenan sometimes um, at national champs or whenever we do of some course. stuff on stage, uh, mm. MCing. Let's on going gag, yeah. 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 Well, look, let's just go back to the Giro because that was, and it's so funny you said that you were a sprinter and, you know, the the story goes that you rode 164K solo time trial as a sprinter. Were you worried about your sprint in that particular stage? Um, uh, what was the thought process? And, and I know the characters of the bunches in those eras were, for example, Cipollini and... And he was a big character in the bunch, still is a big character. And and I I read the story that Cycling Tips had done on that particular uh, stage. It was fantastic read. I'd love you to tell our listeners how that how you won that stage and how Cipollini was kind of 
putting this the living you're scaring living daylights out of you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how long we got? We got about an hour and a half. Okay, <laughs> go um, for it. Yeah. No, no. I mean, I'll try and shorten it. But it was at the start of the day. You're right. I was a sprinter, but I wasn't a pure sprinter. I was more a guy that could win in a group of twenty riders or ten riders, stuff yeah. like that. I'd always finish top 10 in a bunch sprint but I couldn't I couldn't nail the big ones so day seven I woke up feeling fantastic I bounced out of bed and just went this is it and I'd always said to myself I sort of knew by then in my career that I wasn't going to win multiple times in a season I was going to have opportunities and when those opportunities come like any sports athlete when you wake up and you're bouncing out of bed you have to grab it with both hands you know so I decided to go on the attack. I told my director sport if, but I was hoping that 10 or 10, 10 or 15 guys would come with me. Yep. No one came with me. Um, I jumped up the road. I was, I was hearing them abuse me as I was attacking because they decided to ride piano, which in Italian means easy, easy. And the, the Italian teams really did rule the race then. They ruled in terms of pace. This is when we go easy. Mm. And if you break those rules you better win or you're going to cop it. And so I've attacked after 17 kilometres and so I'm hearing the abuse behind. And the story goes from one of my Italian teammates. He said, you're jumping up the road. And he said, they're all abusing you. And they've gone, oh, he's off. He's, he's heading off to the butchers. There he goes. He's going to the butchers because we're racing for a vegetarian team at the time. Yeah. It was a vegetarian-sponsored <laughs> team. So they're all joking. And you imagine back in 2000, you know, there wasn't a single vegetarian in Italy. And so I started going away and then I sat at about 10 seconds ahead of them for like a kilometre, like I didn't go anywhere. And they're like, oh, hang on a minute. He's forgot his wallet. He's coming back to get his wallet because he needs to go to the butchers. So my teammate said he was just like, oh, my God, this is just a disaster. Oh, we're going to be kicked out of the race, you know. And then... You know, long story short, I went over the next rise, went immediately, took 30 seconds, went up to a minute, five minutes. I think I got a maximum gap of 11 minutes. And then, you know, I had to work pretty hard all the way to the end because I won by 50 seconds in the end. Um, and it was only with about 800 metres to go that I turned around and the race director was right behind me with his head out of the sunroof and he gave me the thumbs up. And that was the only reason I knew I was going to win. Yeah. before. A, Two minutes before that, I was told that the, the bunch was coming and I've got to bury the head all the way to the line. So, yeah, that was a memorable day and still to this day it's, you know, it's, uh, yeah, something I feel very lucky, yeah. you know, like you guys are asking me about it 21 mm. years later. Still means and, a lot. Yeah. yeah, so it's, you know, that those, yeah. I feel very fortunate that I can still talk about it. I'd love to hear what they said to you, the Italians, post-race and Cipollini in particular, did the respect change, Dave? Was it? Was it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. The next day, um, you know, so it was a 164K solo move. But up up to that point, even like the, even though I say racing was different, what we hadn't seen for quite a few years in pro cycling were solo breaks, you know, as we see now. Everything's calculated. The teams were getting a lot smarter about how to race, how to set tempo. So I was sort of out of the box a bit. So mm. it was like the fans loved it. The, the Italian commentators loved it. So I was sort of flavour of the month. You yeah. know, oh, this poor yeah. little vegetarian kid, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's won a stage, he's won it solo. This is sort of, this is great. So it was yeah. a good news story. Yeah. So in a way, winning solo the way I did, probably gave me more publicity than if I'd won a bunch sprint. Mm. Yes. Yeah, you know, it's quite ironic, really. Winning a bunch sprint would have meant that I was potentially going to win more stages. Yes. yes. But yeah. winning the solo one has lived on for years because of that. And, yeah, so the next day, yeah. well, I had a bunch of Italians who I didn't know from Italian teams coming up to me, patting me on the back, and, and yeah. Cipollini was one of those. Yeah. And it's like Chippo was like my new mate then. <laughs> it was sort of weird. He yeah. was like really friendly friendly to me for the rest of the tour and he called me by my name yeah. bizarre so yeah. and uh do you have a relationship with Cipollini when you see him around the traps now uh look i don't see much I, I saw him at the tour oh gee quite a few years ago now probably five six years ago and he came to the stage finish yeah. and um 
and uh, I saw him, so I went straight up to him, yeah. really with my work head on because yeah. I thought, oh, he'll be a great interview. Yeah, yeah. And um, and in the in our racing careers, I don't think he spoke any English at all. Yeah. And um, my Italian's okay. It's It's got a bit patchy these days. But So I went up to him and spoke to him in Italian, introduced myself and said, you know, I don't know if you remember me. I raced against you. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, 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 I remember. Then he started speaking back to me in English. Yeah, yeah. So it's amazing how... Yeah. Europe has changed so much and the yeah. sport of cycling now, yeah. English is becoming, well, yeah. it is. It's yeah. absolutely the second language in any of these countries now, whereas 20 years ago, if you didn't speak Italian, Italian. well, don't speak, or mm. if you don't speak Spanish, forget it. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, he was uh, he was cool. It's yeah. an amazing story. There's a, there's a point of the story that I want you to touch on because uh, when I was reading this, I got goosebumps. You, there's a point where you... Said I think maybe 15 or 20 k to go. You'd been away for the whole day for over 120 kilometers so far, 130. And they were clawing you back and they were coming pretty fast. And I think your um, director came out to the, the side of the window and said, yeah, this is your chance. Um, and you said that was quite a memorable moment. So talk us through that last that moment and then the last 20K. and Because um, I got goosebumps kind of reading about it. So Yeah, it was... So, so my director in the car was a former pro. So he obviously knew newly stuff you know and but all day he it wasn't like he backed me in he was he was actually probably being realistic and so all day he wasn't talking to me about potentially winning the stage he'd, he'd talk to me and say hey you can win this sprint keep going you're going to win you know the intermediate sprint and then there was the inter-giro sprint which was a fairly big sort of category at the Giro d'Italia back then it was like a jersey it was like a race within a race. So they had a finish line at the halfway mark of every stage. Mm-hmm. So all day he'd been, he, he had not talked about me potentially winning the stage. And it was sort of annoying me because I was like, mate, I'm not out here for the, for the TV time. <laughs> yeah. I'm killing myself. I'm not, you know, yeah. as much as I'm a bit of a team player, I didn't plan on doing this just for TV time. Mm-hmm. And so finally, as you say, at about 20 kilometres to go, he came up and he's like, mate, the guy that's chasing you has exploded. He's gone from a minute to two minutes. This is what dreams are made of. Go for it. And so suddenly it was suddenly at that point, he was I, suddenly I've got this ex-pro who's backing me in and saying I can win the stage when I'd sort of was always had sort of probably more hope <laughs> that yeah. I could win. Certainly probably not belief really. I didn't know. But suddenly I've got my own director getting the intel from race radio and he's going, my God, he can win this. So that just gave me a real, you know, sort of firecracker. And, um, I mean, to this day, I can tell you 100% without a doubt, it's the most I've turned myself inside out in a whole stage because I think I averaged just shy of 40 kilometres an hour for 185 k's. And, and you know, imagine the bikes were on back yeah. then. Yeah. It was, I mean, they were good bikes, but yeah. nothing like the aerodynamics that you get now. And I think we had a seven-kilometre climb and a four-kilometre climb on the stage, you know, classified as a flat stage yeah. for an attack for the Giro. Yeah. So, yeah, I finished. I was pretty empty. I was pretty yeah. empty. And if I hadn't have won, I would have been completely devastated. So, yeah. the rest, The rest of the stages, you know, the 14 more stages to come, you're on cloud nine and it didn't matter what you did from that point on, you, you, you had a success. How stuffed were you for the rest of the tour? Did yeah. that knock you around? Yeah, well, this is a funny thing. The very next day, and this is, I tell not a word of a lie here, the very next day was a 255-kilometre stage and they, the Giro organisers back then, they're a bit better now, but this is a true story, they miscalculated by 20 kilometres. Oh. To, to, so it was longer. So it was <laughs> 275 plus five kilometres neutral and I rolled five kilometres back to the hotel. Yeah. So that very next day, I think I, I clocked just shy of 290. And, um, but the first 130 kilometres we rode, your grandmother could have kept up. Yeah, yeah. But everyone was in this piano mood. It was a long yeah. day. It ended yeah. up being an eight-hour, 10-minute day in the nice. saddle. Yeah. And the first 50 kilometres, I just had guys patting me on the back yeah. saying, yeah. well done. So I, I was at the cloud nine yeah. absolutely carried me through that day. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Nice well, one of the things I really wanted to touch on was, uh, you know, in your opinion, you know, where where is cycling heading, um, and 
And it is a boom time for cycling uh, in Australia uh, and probably throughout the world. And um, I, I just really keen on your your opinion on you know are we are we managing cycling well at the moment and and what things would you like to see happen um, you know in in the in the cycling community and uh, and the the heads of cycling you know where do you think we're at? That's a good question and it's an important question. Um, I think I think up until recently we've done some good things. But we've also we've also done a lousy job of managing our sport in a administrative aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I won't shy away from criticising the UCI or even Cycling Australia to a degree. Um, but I think right now where we're at, I think we're going in a good direction. And I, I guess I'll focus on just on Australia for the time being. With the formation now of Oz Cycling, I'm a believer 100% that had to happen. So they had to amalgamate all of the state bodies um, basically under the one umbrella. You know, we didn't have mountain bike, BMX, uh, cyclocross was, I think, but, you know, all these other disciplines were all on their own bodies and they all had their own CEOs. So it was a a broken format, Mm -hmm. 100%. So I know there's going to be a little bit of pain, I think, over the next year. We don't suddenly just fix the problems, but I do think we're on the right path path and uh we've got the first i think we've got the first female ceo of well certainly of Oz cycling she's the first ceo but she's also the first female ceo i think of any governing body national body of cycling in this country mm-hmm. which is well overdue mm-hmm. so i i'm optimistic that we're going in a really good direction um and i think they're lining up sort of everything, the building blocks to take the sport to the next level. On on the global sense, I always think there's more that can be done. And I've been saying this for years. I think the riders actually need men and women. The women have just created one, but the riders need a really strong voice. They need a union. Mm. And I'm not for unions per se. That scares people off sometimes. However... Mm. Most cyclists, male and female, have been treated like crap for years. They don't have a leg to stand on. I was one of them, so I think I can speak firsthand. Yeah. And it's it's improved over the years, but there's still a lot of improvement to come. So I think until the riders and athletes can actually be on one union, one voice that they all agree on, I think there's work to there's there's a lot of work to go because you know the the it's a tricky one. There's there's not huge TV rights like football or maybe tennis or, or, or sports like that, but there are some and I think they can improve and I think the riders need to start tapping into that. Um, but, oh, you know, we're, we've come a long way as well. You know, pro sport, pro teams, men's teams, big budgets 20 years ago were $4 million, $5 million. Now they're $50 million. Mm women's teams now are starting to get paid <laughs> that's crazy it's yeah. crazy i'm i'm always an advocate that we've got to do more for women's cycling and the men in the sport and i'm included in that we need to actually back more uh female athletes and and sponsors towards female cycling because i think we've given them a poor a poor gig for for too long far too long and uh but that but that's improving so i think it's going in the right direction it, it would be nice to see it going a little bit faster, but we, we're not going to solve all the problems in, in 24 hours, are we? No. And look, um, w- when we go to Europe, and we've done that qu- quite a bit over the years and seen the direction cycling is going for the everyday cyclists, and a lot of the listeners are, you know, we've got a small percentage who are really elite, and the, the majority of our listeners are uh, everyday cyclists who either just want to stay healthy and fit or they've got a little bit of competitiveness in them and they want to uh, see if they can improve. Um, and the sport of triathlon does this so well. And, and I think that we could learn a lot from, from other sports where it's inclusiveness. And I see Europe doing this with the Grand Fondo and as you have been, you know, taking cycling tours to Europe, to Belgium, to the Spring Classics, you see the Fondos are, they're massive. There's 15,000 
doing Paris-Roubaix and Tour of Flanders. And, and it's a big day for people to uh, either compete at the start of the race to try and be the fastest or just ex- ex- enjoy the event. Do you think that that's where we should be heading? And we've always had our, our clubs cycling, our, our state races, our national bodies. Do you think we need to get that more aligned to, to the way triathlon does it, where you've got your elite and you've got the state champions and, and really good clubs, but you've got more scope for the everyday cyclists to feel a part of, uh, of the direction? Yeah, I mean, look, that's that's another good question. I think, I think... The the I think what you see across the whole sport it's diluted out. So we sort of say, oh gee, can improve here, here, and here, and here, and here. But I think it's just really spread. Like I actually think we need to do more for we one hundred percent need to do more for grassroots. So no, I go away from the the social cyclist. I think they're covered. Yep. I think with so clubs like say St Kilda. Hawthorne, who are relatively new or restarted back up, they're doing a fantastic job getting sort of social cyclists on board. So I think that's happening. And, you know, we've got to remember, and you know this, you're dead right, the the Fondos that we see in Europe and the Northern Classics, but they've got a larger pool of population. So I think we go pretty good here in terms of the social cyclists. But I think 100% there should be more money funded towards grassroots um, and I think they've got to get the NRS, they've got to get it up and running in a, in a more visible sense, I guess, visible meaning mm. live streaming of, you know, st- don't have 20 events, have 10 and make sure all 10 of them are excellent. You know, I think so. I think that's where the work is um, needs to be done. I think there's enough being done behind the scenes um, uh, um, with 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 the, the casual cyclists, and look, I, I'd say I'm privy to a little bit of information because my wife works for Oz Cycling, and she works in participation. So yeah. I know there there there's a big focus on that. I think now the challenge for our governing body is to actually get the elite side of the racing, you know. Running and it's funny because I'm all about grassroots. Believe it or not, I'm all about supporting grassroots, and uh, you know, and I see that there's a, there's a lack of funds towards that. And I mean, it, it's I, I think of it as a pyramid. There's your pyramid, mm. your elites are up here, mm. but what's on the bottom? Mm. Your grassroots. So if you don't have your building blocks strong mm. and healthy, the pyramid will fall over, yeah. and that's why I think it's fallen over. Mm. So I think. There's there's two there's two tiers the elites and the grassroots probably the grassroots is the first part to focus on. It is incredible though that uh, like you said before 2007 was the first year that every stage of the Tour de France was shown live and now we've got um, Paris Bay and Tour of Flanders being shown live which is um, from an elite level coming a long way but I guess you're right it does need to come from that base as well. Where do you um where do you see your future? Is it with SBS for the foreseeable? Uh, future what where do you want to go with your career from here well they've got they've just won the rights to the tour de france for 10 more years so that'd see me out nicely (laughs) (laughs) but look i'm a i'm a contractor i'm a freelancer so people think i'm i'm a full-time employee at sbs i'm not but i'm loving the group of people that, that you mentioned all the names and our executive producer catherine whelan who's been sort of really in charge of the cycling for quite a few years now. She's a great boss. She's great to work with. She backs us in. She she lets us have creative control, really, a lot of the time over the stuff we produce. So I'm really happy in my current job. And, you know, and I do get to do stuff like the National Champs, um, Tour Down Under yeah. work on. Um, there's a few other sort of major events that I work on throughout the year. So it gives me a bit of variety and, um, you know, it's been a challenging sort of 12, 18 months for all of us. Mm. But hopefully, yeah, I think like like any cycling or sporting fan, we just want to get back to Europe, don't we, and uh, especially in, in the winter months here. Yeah. So now I'm, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing and it's, you know, everything we've talked about today, the sport is continuing to evolve and change and I think that keeps us all motivated to sort of stay in the sport. 
and work in it more because it keeps evolving and changing. And yeah. so that's good. It's an interesting topic you just talked about, you know, what's happened in the last 12 months. What's the, what's the biggest lesson that you personally have learned in this last 12 months, which has been like no other? Well, I said I never take, I don't take my job for granted and I don't, I don't ever think it lasts forever or things like that. But every now and then it's just a nice little reminder, isn't it, to, to remind you what you've got in your life. And I sort of, I was fine through the year. It was actually when we came out of lockdown, I probably had a month in December. I was like, where am I going? What am I doing? And that was when, you know, in Melbourne at least, we're pretty much back to normal. So I think it just was a reminder for me, yeah, I actually do love commentating. I enjoy it. And it was actually Tour Down Under. That was the first event I did back, mm. you know, in a normal, normalised sense. And it was off the back of Tour Down Under, I was buzzing. Mm. I just thought, wow, it was so good to commentate. And, you know, it was an NRS race. Yes. Um, it wasn't the world too, and I'm not saying discrediting that, because it was NRS, but I loved it. It was mm. it was just great to cover local riders. It was great racing, um, you know, and that just, yeah, I think that was a lesson, just to not take it for granted. I never have, but, you know, yeah. I think all of us can have a little reminder every now and then. Absolutely. A uh, question to finish off. Um, Dad always likes asking this one. Do you still love riding your bike? Oh, probably more than ever now and i think the more the older you get and the slower you get <laughs> the more the more you actually appreciate it and no i love it i love it you know um like in the in the bulk of melbourne's lockdown last year i was absolutely maximizing the, the 60 minutes or the two hours most days that i could mm-hmm. yeah. and i think you know i think all of us you appreciated being able to get out and ride your bike, didn't you? Oh, I certainly did. So, no, I love it. I love it so much. It takes you to so many places. You can see so much in a single ride and it's this, it's such a simple thing, but, gee, it's um, it gives you so much freedom. So, it, you know, and that's that's outside of the competitive sense of it. Just getting on two wheels is, um, is so good. Great. That's a great way to finish off. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for joining us on this. We really enjoyed that chat. And I want to say again, I uh, absolutely loved last week at the Nationals. Uh, we had a, quite a good uh, campaign with our Travelo athletes to hear you and Matt Keenan constantly saying, oh, here's another good Travelo team or presenting another Travelo team with, with the winner. It's good to hear it from your voices. No, pleasure, pleasure. And uh, yeah, it was, it's, it's great to get to know the local scene as well. Uh, so uh, no, we enjoyed it. And uh, good luck for the year ahead for you guys. Cheers. Thanks, Dave. Thanks so much, Dave. Talk to you next time.